This is the story behind the story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Katya Apikina, whose debut novel, The Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish, tells the story of two sisters who go to live with their estranged father in New York after their mother's suicide attempt. It has appeared on best-of lists for a variety of publications, including Harper's Bazaar, Vulture, BuzzFeed, and Publishers Weekly. And NPR's Michael Schaub described it as a stunningly accomplished book with a refreshingly original structure, storyline, and characters. Katya Apikina, welcome to the story behind the story. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you to share a little of your background. Who are you and how did you come to be a writer? I came to writing as an undergrad at Columbia. I, as like a high school student and before that, I had no interest in writing, I don't think. I was pretty into photography and visual art. And um, when I started writing, I was kind of interested in poetry because it seemed sort of like a little bit less intimidating, which now that I say it is like crazy because now I think poetry is actually very intimidating. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, I think I was kind of interested with my photography and capturing these um, like kind of off-kilter weird moments. And I would sort of set them up and have like friends kind of be actors in them. And I was getting kind of frustrated with like the amount of just equipment that was necessary and like people that I had to wrangle. And with writing, I felt like, oh, I could kind of, if I was interested in just like creating a sort of mood in the person you know, looking at the photo or reading the thing, I could sort of do that with a lot less, um, with a lot less stuff. Like I could just, I didn't really need permission. I didn't really need like chemicals or a dark room or equipment. I could just do it by myself. And um, that appealed to me. So like, I'm, I don't think I was like naturally a storyteller or anything like that, but I was kind of interested in like describing these sort of static moments. And then like eventually I kind of figured out how to like, combine like almost like if you're picturing sort of beads on a necklace or something like static moment after static moment after static moment into something of like a flip book type of thing of like a story and um like I when I was interested in poetry it was sort of more prose poetry too like yeah I think I was always kind of intimidated by like plot or structure or narrative and then I think because I was so intimidated by it I just focused on it so much more so I ended up writing like a novel that's you know very very <laughs> plotted um and very like structured um you know just there was so much outlining involved in the novel but it actually came from a place of that being something that totally does not come naturally to me like the stuff that comes naturally to me is um like metaphors you know that's like I could do that all day. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers who I am, but that's how I kind of came to writing, I think. Describe the deeper the water, the uglier fish in your own words. What kind of story does it tell? Yeah, so I feel like as an elevator pitch type of thing, it's always been really hard for me to talk about it. And I think, like, if I just had to say it in a sentence, so it's about two sisters, Edith and May, who as teenagers... Um, have to leave their home in Louisiana where they lived with their mom um, to move to New York City to live with their dad, who's a famous writer. And they have to move because their mother is committed to a mental hospital following, following a suicide attempt. And their dad had been, you know, had basically built his career using their mother as his muse when he was a, a writer. And... Um, 
I guess like the thing about the novel, like the sort of starting place for me with the novel was actually its structure. Um, and the way it's structured is sort of unusual. It's sort of inspired by um, oral histories and it's told through multiple first person accounts. Um, but it's not quite like an oral history in that one of the one of the people, Edie, um, her storyline is all in present tense. And the rest of the um the rest of the accounts are all like people looking back on the past. So it's this kind of unusual structure and it came originally from like a well, originally I had been doing all this research on a nonfiction book mm -hmm. about white Southerners in the civil rights movement. And I was going to archives and I was um reading oral histories and um reading these like documents and stuff. And what was so interesting to me was like the way that a sense of a person kind of like accumulated slowly through these accounts and also the way people like would talk about whatever event and they're always, you know, the main character of their own story, but then sort of they might be like totally peripheral characters to my story, but like they don't think of them. Nobody right. thinks of themselves as a Everyone's peripheral the hero character. of their own story. <laughs> right, exactly. So I was sort of interested in seeing like how all of these accounts kind of like reverberate off of each other. And also the way like um, things, truth is this contradictory thing where like one person feels like they're telling the truth um, and it could be like incomplete. Um, tension or contradiction with someone else's truth and it's not necessarily that it's a lie or that one is more true than another I mean I think truth is this kind of like slippery complicated thing so I think that was sort of what I wanted to look at and figure out when I was starting off writing um, and I feel like that's kind of what my book is about even yeah. if that's not like the plot of it so when you have a book like that, when you have an idea like that that is so abstract and so tied to these these large concepts and structures, where do you actually start in the writing? Yeah. So I wrote the book pretty much in the order that it exists. Um, and I started sort of from the beginning and like very slowly the story emerged. Like when I first started writing the book, actually um, – about a year and a half in, I had to start over because when I first started it, the character of the mother was dead. And so the novel just kept becoming a book about grief. And that wasn't really what I wanted to be writing a book about. Um, or like it just was such a strong emotion that kind of overpowered everything else that I wanted to be writing about. Mm -hmm. So then I kind of brought her back to life and like started over from the beginning. Um, I, I don't really like think in these abstract ways necessarily. I think I start off with like a character and it sort of goes from there. And then these abstract sort of big ideas are things that looking back now I can sort of see and trace and kind of understand that that's what I was exploring but I don't usually start off with like some sort of big theme and then find characters to embody that I think I start off from um, like characters or a situation um, I was interested in these two sisters I was interested in this idea of like a muse Mm -hmm. um, amuse artist relationship and just like there's something about like being amused that's so kind of like unpleasant to me like the idea of being someone else's muse doesn't seem like 
this wonderful thing to me. And I realized that that's maybe kind of odd. And so I was kind of exploring, like, well, why? So let, let's talk about that a little more, because I think that is one of the, the big themes in the book is this artist and muse relationship. Um, and that's something that is explored in, uh, I think, a lot of artists explore it and are interested in it. But it's very different in your book, and especially in how things turn out. So I guess one of the things I'm curious about is how you go about breaking new ground in territory that is so well-traveled. So I think, like, I'm, I try not to judge my characters. So I feel like the, the well-traveled territory is seeing the artist-muse relationship from, like, that great male artist's point of view, right? And so you get some of that in this book as well. Like, Dennis, their father, is... Um, like, I understand where he's coming from. I don't think that he, his intentions were malicious um, in the way that he sort of was using his wife to make art. Um, or I don't think he would think of them as malicious anyway. Um, and then at the same time, like, I understand that kind of feeling that on her end where she can't quite articulate why it is she feels, like, robbed in some way by this experience. But I also can just, like, somehow just... Like, I can physically feel it in my body almost, that, that sense of violation in it. And um, it's not necessarily rational. or I mean, it's not irrational, but I, I don't know exactly why. I feel like it's one of those things where I can, um, like, intuitively understand where she's coming from. But I also understand why it would be hard because, like, we're so used to this other narrative to kind of go against it or to to have it make sense why it is that she would feel violated by being used in this way. Um, it's funny, like, I remember my my um, mom had gotten me this book on, like, being a muse in my, like, early 20s. It wasn't, like, a, a how-to book, I feel like. <laughs> but I feel like her, her, like, reason for giving it to me was, like, with a how-to sort of purpose. And, like, my mom's actually an artist. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, like, there's just something about it that just like I just remember feeling like so irritated by that book you know by just this idea that I should be somebody's muse as opposed to like a book on you know being the person who gets to do the seeing as opposed to being the one that's being looked at you know well it sort of goes back to that idea you were talking about before where um you know everyone wants to be the hero of their own story and when you're in that position of being the muse you're not you're, yeah, you're like somebody or somebody else. Yeah, you're somebody You're whatever somebody else makes you be, you know. Yeah, it's funny. It's like someone asked me like, oh, this is a book about like teenage rage. Did you have a lot of teenage rage? <laughs> and it's like, no, I didn't. I didn't even know that was like an option or even in my early 20s. Like I feel like, oh, now that I'm in my 30s, I have like a lot of rage in retrospect, you know, for – um. St for stuff from then but like at the time it just didn't even occur to me but like yeah this is a book with a lot of rage in it I think like that is sort of um expressed in different ways usually like kind of compressed and compressed and compressed <laughs> inside of people until it you know manifests itself in some way or another yeah so let's talk then also about the relationship between May and Dennis when May sort of inhabits that role that Marianne had before as his muse. Yeah. So I guess um, I should say that May resembles her mother a lot. She looks like her mother did when she was younger, which is when um, Dennis had met 
her. There's like a big age difference between Dennis and Marianne, their mother. And um, he'd met her when she was a child, but then, you know, they didn't develop like a romantic relationship until she was 17. So like still young. And he was in his 30s. So when May is staying with him, she sort of tries to fill the role that her mother had had as the muse. And she wants to be looked at in that way. And she wants to sort of um, inspire him to write another book because he hadn't written one in a very long time. And um, I guess, you know, I think she really wants his love and his attention. And there's sort of like almost a supernatural sense of her becoming her mother in, in those moments too, which I think like isn't, I mean, I don't know that supernatural is the right word, but I feel like when you're very close, or at least I felt that way, I think a lot of women feel that way about their moms, like when they're very close to them it's like you have trouble sort of discerning yourself and them as being like these separate entities and I think it's kind of hard like part of growing up is sort of separating yourself from from that and like kind of t figuring out like what is you and what is them what are you know what have you you assume that certain things were you but it was actually just them and sort of realizing that so anyway with with May and her mother they have like a very kind of blurry boundary between each other anyway back in um Louisiana so being away from her is like this really freeing thing for May to be away from her mother but then she sort of ends up kind of becoming her mother for her father so I don't know the book in a lot of ways like these family relationships it's kind of hard to talk about it sounds confusing I don't think it is when you're reading it but it is sort of like a hall of mirrors of these relationships that kind of like replicate from generation to generation in these sort of like you know in slightly off kilter ways or one of the things that fascinates me is that while well, as you said May is the one who seeks out that Muse relationship with her father and who wants to inspire him, she also pretty clearly isn't satisfied with it when when it sort of runs its course. I mean, I think she wants his love, you know? And I don't think... And she's a 14-year-old girl who doesn't... I don't feel like she really knows entirely what she's doing. You know, I think it's on him to sort of not use that need of hers for love, for his own ends. I mean, he he's very... Uh, he's very callous or, or just careless with her and with her feelings. I don't know that he's evil or anything like that. Um, but I don't know. I was like thinking about the nature of evil. He's not evil in like a specifically malicious way, but if evil is just being, um, is obliviousness evil? Like if is, you know, is being oblivious when it's convenient and serves you? Um, I mean, that doesn't seem like a, good quality I don't know if it's an <laughs> evil quality but it's I mean I don't know if it even makes sense to think about it like in in terms of good and evil but he um he hurts her you know and I don't think he does it because he wants to hurt her but I don't think he gives it much thought you know I'm Clara Shirley Appel and this is the story behind the story we're going to take a short break then we'll return to my conversation with Katya Apakina This is your first novel, as I understand it, but you have written and published pretty widely in other mediums for a while now. What was your process like when you sat down to write this, and how is writing a novel different for you from writing a short story or a screenplay? So when I started writing this, 
I didn't work on anything else at the same time. Like I didn't work on any stories or um, like on anything else creative while I was working on this. And I worked on this for many years. So from like for about five or six years, I worked on this and I didn't have parallel projects. Whereas I feel like with shorter stuff, I usually have a lot of things kind of going simultaneously in like various states. But this, this book was so hard to write for a lot of reasons. You know, some of the subject matter is like dark and difficult and forced me to kind of go into those spaces. And that was hard. But then also just having faith that like it would all hold together in the end and that it wouldn't just like collapse. You know, it's it's kind of there's so many storylines and just that it would all kind of coalesce and be like compelling ultimately like it just required just such a crazy amount of faith and I don't feel like I'm somebody who has that much faith <laughs> so it just like took everything out of me you know and I thought that like if I had any other sources of creative satisfaction I just would abandon this and so I just didn't let myself have anything else other than this you know um because I just was worried I would I just wouldn't like see it through to the end. Mm. I'd never worked on anything of this scope before. Um, it's not like this is just the first novel I've published. Like this is the first novel I've written too. And with the script that I wrote, I wrote it with other writers. So that wasn't like my project in the same way. And then with the, um, you know, with short stories, it's just like a lot less, riding on it and also I wrote them all while I was in grad school so there's kind of this like support system and there's um feedback and you have deadlines and like somebody's waiting on the other end for you to finish with this it's not like anybody cared if I was going to finish or not you know like it just was completely like this act of faith and um it felt like I could you know, do all this work on this thing and then um, just have it not work out. There are like so many steps along the way where things could have just not worked out um, with writing it and then with publishing it. You know, it's just it just feels like this huge. I just feel so lucky that it worked out the way it did. And like now, whenever I look at a published book, I sort of like look at it <laughs> like it's a miracle, you know, like that this happened, that that it came out, that people are reading it. Um that the writer had like the faith in themselves to keep going with it. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's really hard. And also like with a book, you don't really want to, um, send things out until they're ready. Right. And it's like a really long time until it's ready. So you're kind of having to really just trust yourself in a way that, um, I wasn't used to doing. So, I mean, do you feel like you learned things about, writing and doing this you feel like you learn things about yourself yes definitely I mean I feel like I, I'm just a much stronger writer now like I feel like a lot of my short stories were now that I look back like almost studies like sketches or studies for this novel and not because they were like even they weren't like similar characters or any like plot things that are similar, but some of them, like I was just kind of trying out different voices, different techniques and stuff. Like I could look at each kind of story and see like, oh, this was sort of practice for this element in my novel, even though I hadn't thought about it like at the time or anything like that. There's like a level of emotional depth in this novel that I, um, I don't think my stories 
like maybe a few of them did, but like I feel like for the most part, it required really kind of coming back and really getting to know these people in such a deep way um, and just kind of trusting that they would show me things about themselves if I just kept coming back every single day. And they did, you know, and I do feel like it's just a matter of it got to a point, you know, towards the like when when I was already confident that it was all coming together, where it was sort of like, oh, if I show up, things will happen. Mm. And if I just keep showing up, like things will happen. And that sort of confidence in that confidence in the process that I don't think I would have had before. What surprised you most? I don't know that with stories I really ever had this to this extent, but I think what surprised me most was the sort of like dream state that I would enter where things would just kind of be writing themselves. And it was like, I felt like a channel or something, you know, like it felt like the stuff was kind of rushing out of me or like moving through me. And it didn't feel like I had an active hand in it. Like I definitely had an active hand in sort of structuring and preparing and outlining and kind of being ready for it when it came to kind of catch it, you know, and be there for it. But it didn't feel like, um, you can tell in the writing when it's just kind of happening, when it feels like almost divine, the process, as opposed to like me actively kind of forcing it. And I don't, yeah, I don't know, because I hadn't worked on anything for like so long or kind of stuck with anything for so long. I don't think I'd ever experienced that before. And it was very exciting. And since writing this, I've written like one short story and a script. I'm like finishing a script. And um, I've been like experiencing that with those other things too. And it's very, it's like a drug. I don't know. It's like, Sounds a, like a runner's high almost. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. I've never had a runner's high. I like keep trying to run and get it, but I've like, uh, yeah, I've never actually experienced <laughs> a runner's high. But it is very, um, it's just like very exciting to be able to kind of like let go and let this thing happen. It's kind of like a very strange feeling feeling when you like both are trying to control something and trying to let go of it at the same time and it kind of you know it's like very fleeting Mm -hmm. so it's like when you catch it it's I don't know I mean whatever there's like lots of metaphors for it like (laughs) you know if you're like if you've ever you know it's like a wind or getting it at a certain angle right if you're sailing or something Mm -hmm. it's just like you feel it and then you're moving and otherwise you're like there's a lot of just kind of sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting and um you just kind of have to stick with it and it's like horrible and sometimes (laughs) it's I mean it is horrible it just feels like so dispiriting and then once you're in it it's also very hard to be like okay like now I have to you know like pick up my kid from daycare and like have a you know like Mm. a balanced life when like all I want to be doing is like living in my head in this alternate world that I've created you know it's like hard Mm -hmm. to kind of go back and forth between reality and like your imagination when you're like really in it how did you know when you were done when you were ready to send it out so I didn't write the ending until I knew it was pretty much ready to send out like I just kept editing and editing and editing without writing the actual ending Because I knew that if I had an ending, I would just send it out. Like, I just wouldn't be able to, 
you know, like that desire for outside validation is so strong and it's so easy to feel discouraged and like you need somebody's approval or permission or whatever. And so I think I just would have sent it before it was ready to be out in the world and it would have like hurt the book's chances, you know, of ever... Um, like of getting an agent or whatever. So like in order to knowing that about myself, I just didn't write an ending until the rest of it was like as good as I could possibly make it. And then I did do kind of more revisions um, with my agent and it was so helpful, you know, at that point to get like an outside perspective. But until it was like as good as I could make it, I didn't want, um, I didn't want well, first of all, I didn't want to like risk like, like risk rejection, but also I didn't really want to get before I knew exactly what it was. I didn't really want to get outside advice or perspective because mm-hmm. I think I would have just taken it because mm-hmm. it would have been easier and like more comforting to know that like someone was telling me what to do. And then it maybe it would have been like not the right thing because definitely like when I was talking to agents, some of them had advice that. Um, I strongly disagreed with and by that point I knew what the book was so I knew like I don't agree with this but I think if it had been earlier I would have been like okay I'll make this into a novel about Dennis like that was one of the uh, one of the <laughs> one of the like uh, notes I got from someone and it was just like well this is not a novel about Dennis you know this is a novel about his daughters like that's um, exactly what it's not you know but I think it's like, who knows what I would have agreed to do and like my desperation to get published. <laughs> I don't know. You're listening to the story behind the story on KSQD 90.7 FM. For those of you just joining us, my guest is Katya Apakina, author of The Deeper the Water, The Uglier the Fish. Where do you write? What's the physical space like? Um, this book was written in a lot of different coffee shops around Los Angeles. And also at two different artist residencies, which, you know, were really important in this book. Like, the book was started in an art residency at U-Cross in Wyoming. It was, like, a two-week residency. And being able to just, like, completely focus on something and be, like, fed and not have to worry about, like, any of the kind of, um, like, mundane life stuff... Um, is great. And so kind of like that felt like a kind of a big push. And so it was like the big push I needed to start. And then also when I started the book over was also at a residency. And I think it would have been really hard to do at home just because like, I think I would have kind of kept lying to myself that it was working when, (laughs) you know, just because it's so inconvenient to like acknowledge that when something isn't working and just like abandon it and start over, especially because it had been like already a year and a half in. So it felt like oh no you know like I've already spent so much time and you know but I think it just had to be done and being somewhere away for a month where I can just focus on it it kind of brought me to the point where I realized like this doesn't mean that um this isn't like a failure in some way this is just part of the process and so yeah those were like the two residencies and then um in coffee shops I would like I'm pretty sensitive to noise so I would like listen to these um it's not white noise it's like way weirder it's like the sound <laughs> of like wind and rain and a fire burning but it's kind of sinister and it's just like a weird app that I had actually downloaded when my daughter was born to see if it would like help her sleep which she didn't care but like I could kind of was like ooh I like this <laughs> and it's kind of like a weird thing to play it in infant cuz it's so kind of spooky sounding 
But I would listen to that um, through headphones while I was working in coffee shops. But now that I have an office, I don't, I usually just, it's a lot easier for me to just, um, like, not get dressed and leave my house if I don't have to. So so describe your office for me. Describe that space. and. So it used to be my husband's office, and then he, um, we turned our attic into his office. So I used to have, like, this little desk in the hallway that um, when our friend was over, he was like, oh, this is, like, a metaphor about women in the workplace. Because, like, <laughs> I had, like, a desk in the hallway, and he had, like, an actual, like, office with a door. Um, but anyway, now I have the office with the door, and he's got the... Um, He's he's got the attic, so I still have like a bunch of his random like um, awards and stuff <laughs> hanging in my office, which is fine. There's like this weird um, little glass bottle of river water from the Mississippi River that I like. That's his. That's like his keepsake, but now it's become my like I've inherited it as my like weird keepsake, and so I keep that on my desk. And um, I have like a lot of weird postcards from. Like, since maybe some of them are probably from like even when I was a teenager to like now. And um, I have a big whiteboard with, uh, you know, like whatever. Right now, it's like all the stuff I have to do is on Mm -hmm. it, like publicity stuff and other writing projects. Cause I do, I'm also a translator and I'm also a screenwriter. And um, I've been trying to like work on some essays. My grandmother. This is a totally a tangent, but my grandmother died last year and she left me with these memoirs and I've been translating them from Russian to English um, for my daughter and just like to have. And the, um, she had survived, you know, the Holocaust and they're just really, it's just, she had given them to me actually way before she died and I just never read them until after she died. Mm. Why? Like, you know, there's just so many questions I have now that I obviously can't ask her. Anyway, so I've been translating that and um, working on this feature script and um, I've been doing some radio stuff too, like radio journalism. How do the uh, the objects and the things the things in your space and the space itself inform your writing? Uh, I would say, like, they don't really, like, I'm not really, I, I have a lot of kind of weird or cool stuff around the house that are, like, souvenir-y type of weird objects from, like, the diff- many different places that I've lived. Um, but I don't really, like, I'm just not, I like having them, I guess, but I don't really get super attached to things. And my um, my office is pretty minimalist. It's, like, I have a bunch of, books so I have like a a desk attached to a bookshelf and then like the bookshelf next to my desk is just with stuff that's like relevant to what I'm working on and then I don't have like that much stuff but I guess it's nice to have I mean I don't want the the space to feel like sterile you know so it's like I have kind of that's what like the the postcards and stuff are for and then there's lots of just like different objects related to different projects that I'm working on you know because I'm working on a lot of different stuff there's like kind of a lot of different um objects that go along with it but I don't feel like I really um like I I would much rather be at like an empty desk than like surrounded by a ton of uh significant objects that like I um get kind of claustrophobic how do you avoid isolation when you're writing, and how do you find community? 
Well, I think because I have a kid, I have to be present in a way that if I didn't, I I would, you know, I think I would be able to be a lot more isolated, which is like positive and negative. Um, I like being isolated. So like, I don't know. Yeah, that it's like entirely negative. But I do feel like I, so I went to an MFA program and I'm still very close with my friends from there and we still share writing and do workshops like over um zoom and just anytime any of us like finishes a story we usually send it to each other and we read each other's novels and stuff like that when we're like many many drafts of them as as we go and then also like people I've met through the art residencies too kind of are also part of that and having that community is so important like having readers good readers for me and being able to read their stuff too I don't know I don't think I'd be able to do it without that it's it's been very crucial and then it was great too like I met all these writer mothers in LA here too um we were all like pregnant at the same time and our kids are all like just a few weeks apart so having them has been just like so great for me for this book how early did you start sharing material with the folks in your writing groups, uh, the MFA program, and the folks from the retreats? Like right away. I mean, I have so, I have certain readers who I just share stuff with. Like as soon as like I was sharing stuff as soon as I was writing it. You know, I don't know that I'd be able to do it without them. Like the, they were just they didn't have to give me any sort of they weren't giving me any sort of like editorial feedback, but just knowing that they were on the other end waiting for pages from me made such a difference for like my morale and for not feeling like I was just like throwing stuff into a void, you know? And I thank all of them into my acknowledgement page. <laughs> but like, yeah, like there are so many people and I'm just incredibly grateful who have read parts of this book and all of this book in so many different versions, so many different times. I mean... I would, um, if I were them, be just so incredibly sick of this book, <laughs> you know, like there's only so many times you can read a book, but, um, and I feel like whatever that limit is, is how many times they read it. Cause yeah, so many times. How many times did you read your favorite book? I feel like as a, it's interesting cause I don't think I reread re books very often anymore, but as a teenager, like I remember rereading Franny and Zooey and um, Raise High the Roof Beams Carpenter and Seymour and Introduction and, um, and like, I guess Catcher in the Rye, too, and Nine Stories. Like, I was so obsessed with Salinger as a, I guess, like, from eighth grade to maybe, like, call, through college, probably. And I would reread those, like, very regularly. I mean, probably not all those books every year, but at least, you know, like a couple of them every year. So, yeah, I read those so many times. And it's funny because I have not read them as, a, like, an adult at all. I I don't want to, I don't think. <laughs> I get scary. I don't know that it would hold up. Yeah, it's, like, scary to reread it. And also just I feel like things would just irritate me that didn't irritate <laughs> me then, you know, that I, like, was more tolerant of, you know. And then you'd have to grieve being irritated with them. And <laughs> yeah, like, I don't need to I, – I, I don't need to – have that experience I don't think I'm fine just kind of leaving it I'm Clara Shirley Appel and this is the story behind the story we're going to take a short break when we come back Katya will read a passage from her book 
I'd like to ask you now to read a passage from the book. Is, is there something you have in mind? I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter three. It's going to be, um, the first section is going to be a letter from Marianne McLean, that's their mother, to Edith and May, and it's going to be from 1997. My dear daughters, please ignore my previous letter of familiar itch behind the eyeballs, words not my own. Can you even read this? It's the medicine that makes my hands shake. Please do not be alarmed, tremors and earthquakes in my hands and feet and face. They'll keep deforming me until there's nothing left to deform. Every morning they put me in an ice bath up to my neck. I've never been so cold. A nurse, sadistic bitch, sits and watches my teeth chatter. I've developed a nasty cough, but they say some of the fog has lifted. I am writing you girls a letter, after all, my two lovelies, my ribbit and rabbit. I forgive you and try not to think about you. I'm ashamed, of course. I want to keep you, even thoughts of you, away from this place. The suffering is in the walls, and the floor, under the tables. It's mixed into the pain. It smells like shit and fear. It gets into your nostrils, and then it's too late because it's in you. My neighbor can't stop crying, can't or won't. I have only recently begun to distinguish between awake and asleep. I've started writing again. Words repeat in my head. The only way to flush them out is to write them down. Poems. Your father is no saint, but he is a lot of things. I love you. It's a bell in the fog, the only thing that still exists. Be brave, Mom. And this is from Edith in 1997. What have they done to her in there? What did I let them do? The paramedics and the police. I should have lied, but I was so stunned. I told them what happened, and then they twisted it. The man with the gun holsters pouring me an orange soda into a styrofoam cup. He was younger than the detectives on television shows, practically my age, wispy mustache. He asked me question after question, and stupidly I told him everything. And he rubbed my shoulders and wiped the orange from my mouth with a napkin. Why hadn't I kept quiet? I put her in there. She thinks so, too. Why else would she need to forgive me? And now they're torturing her because of what I said. Between the ice baths and the pills they're giving her, it's a miracle she can write at all. Her handwriting was always so small, neat, round. She would press down hard enough that it was almost an engraving. You could run your fingers over the paper and feel the words. Here, though, her handwriting looks like a ghost sneezed. There's nothing in it in the way it looks that is hers. It could have been written by someone else, her sobbing neighbor, some slob in a turban. It makes me feel better to think it was somebody else's hand shaking over the paper that mom was just dictating. I read the letter again a third time, a fourth time. I start to hear the words and not see them, my two lovelies, my ribbit and rabbit. That sounds like her. The sound of her voice in my head calms me, bell in the fog, even though the things she is saying, tremors deforming me, are not very calming. I get to the beginning of the letter again and stop. Please ignore my previous letter. Where's the other letter? I ask Dennis. I never saw it. He must have hidden it from us. Dennis doesn't answer me. He's busy reading over our shoulders. He's squinting because he's too vain to get glasses. Has he gotten to the part about him yet? No saint. If he has, he gives no indication of it. I don't know what she means when she says he's a lot of things. I assume it's bad. What did you do with the other letter? I ask him again. 
What letter, he says, looking down at me with his wet lamb eyes. Is he lying? Where did he put it? She said she sent another letter. You can't hide things like that from us. I feel the blood rushing into my face. It's not right. I'm not hiding anything. You're with me all the time. You see me get the mail. This is true, but it's not like we pay attention to it. He could easily have hidden it in a magazine, read it later in his room. She probably never even wrote it, May says slowly. She probably just thought she did or dreamed she did and got confused. That's May. She'll take any opportunity to make Mom look foolish. It's disgusting. Or maybe the doctors held on to it, Dennis says. They monitor her correspondence. I imagine a doctor unfolding and reading my mother's letter and then folding it back and putting it in a manila folder in her file, evidence against her, words she said to us in anger that will now be used to keep her locked up. I think you're lying. The chair falls backwards as I stand, bangs against the tile on the kitchen floor. May puts her hand on mine, but I shake it off, that little know-it-all traitor. She probably knew about the letter all along. Dennis must have showed it to her, and she told him it would upset me too much to see it. Well, I'll find it. Edie, what are you doing? Please don't touch my desk. Edith! Dennis follows me into his room. He crouches, gathering the papers I threw on the floor. Enough, he says, as I try to swipe at a stack of papers on his bedside table. I open the book he's been reading and shake it out. A bookmark flutters to the ground, nothing else. Edith, that's enough. He holds me by the back of my shirt, but I leap forward like I'm on a leash. I'm looking at the windowsill. That's where he probably sat, reading it, smoking, reading, crying. Why is there so much ash in the ashtray, I say. He burned it, lit the tip of the match, and watched the words melt. Edie, stop. May's voice is quiet. She's embarrassed. I look at her face. No, she's not embarrassed. She's scared of me. I place the ashtray back on the windowsill, careful not to spill any of it. And this section is from May. I was the one who threw out the first letter from Mom. I could hear the whistle of it hurtling towards us, so I intercepted it. This was difficult since I was almost never alone, but desperation makes you crafty. The envelope felt heavy and hot to the touch, and it contained ten illegible pages, each word a barbed hook. I skimmed it, careful not to let any of the words catch in me, before I tore it up and flushed it down the toilet. I didn't want Edie getting any more agitated about Mom than she already was. I wouldn't say I wanted Mom dead, I'm not a monster, but I wanted her vacuum sealed somewhere where she couldn't get to us. In New York, I was happy, happy and safe from her, I thought. I failed to intercept the second letter. It arrived, narcissistic, well-wrought, barely legible, and full of those elliptical riddles that get under your skin and tug. Edie became obsessed, analyzing it to death. What did it signify that nothing was capitalized? Mom's low sense of self-worth, her aversion to order, her artistic temperament? Was she a frustrated creative person with no outlet for her artistic energies? Was this the true source of her unhappiness? Would poetry prove to be her salvation? I let Edie talk and talk about it. I didn't contradict her, even though I knew that none of what she was saying was true or relevant. She did not understand Mom at all. The third letter came a few days after that. Edie was already wound up, and she poured over the new one like a cryptologist. It wasn't really a letter. There was no dear or love. It was a poem. How coy of Mom, how opaque to communicate with us in this way, to demand that we guess what it was she was trying to say, like she was Sylvia fucking Plath. What do you think it means? What do you think it means, Edie kept saying, standing too close and watching me as I read it. 
The poem was gibberish, the unpunctuated words together, unpleasant sounds, repetitive, oppressive. But reading it filled my mouth with a fetid taste of lake water. It made me think of those night trips when Mom would disappear into Lake Pontchartrain, and I would nervously pace the shore, waiting for her head to break the surface. I was dry and on land, getting devoured by mosquitoes, but I could only feel the algae squishing under my feet, the black water burning in my nose. Once, Mom emerged from the water with an enormous catfish latched onto her arm. On the drive home, the fish flapped and struggled in the back seat, while Mom laughed so hard I had to steer. She was laughing, but what does that mean? It wasn't an expression of joy, it was just a sound, like something in her was trying to get out. What, Edie said, what? She sensed that I had been able to decode it in some way. It was clear to me the poem was a suicide note. It might as well have been an acrostic that spelled out, Goodbye, forever. How selfish, how grotesque. Why pull us into all that again? We were children, and the text, the handwriting, jerky and weak. It forced me to imagine her in the act of writing, which I also resented. I did not want to imagine her at all, because if I allowed her in, I felt like I would lose myself again. It was better to take this rare opportunity that forced her off of me and leave it that way. I never told Edie what that poem really meant. I think I made up an interpretation involving mythology and even tried to convince myself of it. But I couldn't get the images out of my head of Mom floating face down in a lake in a bathtub in the neighbor's pool. I remember hugging Cronus at night and burrowing my face in his fur, letting his purring replace the static that her words had left in my head. There's something almost cinematic about that, about the way that the letter and the present tense um, narrative from Edie and then May's reflection are strung together. How did you choose the order of those perspectives? I feel like... I think I read somewhere um, like some writing advice about how like think of it as when you're driving, you can just really see like where your headlights are pointed to. You can't like see the destination, but you just kind of keep going. And I think it was really like each perspective would just kind of lead to the next one naturally. Like it would just kind of organically evolve. And um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the perspectives are kind of like they'll overlap just a little bit. So they're not it's not like looking at the exact same event from three different points of view necessarily but they'll like but there'll be some some amount of overlap so you're getting enough of sort of a sense of um each of the different takes on the situation without kind of like retreading like while still feeling like there's kind of movement forward so i don't know that i was like kind of consciously i i, I wouldn't necessarily like this one sort of lent itself naturally to you know, you have the mom's letter and then you get their reactions to the letter. And so I don't know why I chose specifically to do um, Edie first and then May, but you kind of get the immediate reaction in the moment reaction from Edie and then sort of the reflection afterwards. I think that just kind of makes the most sense when you're just thinking about it as you're kind of uh, like almost like you're zooming out or something like you see the document mm -hmm. and then you kind of move out a little bit to like the immediate aftermath and then you move out more to get kind of the you know the zoomed out version of like with with time you know you mentioned this earlier but Edie is the only person for most of the novel who is is literally present who is speaking in the present moment and is experiencing the events as they happen even for example, Marianne's letters, their letters, their written artifacts, um, 
So it's at least unclear whether we're seeing them at some point in the future or as they're being written. Why is it Edie who is the only one with that perspective? Why Edie? Why not May or Marianne or Dennis or any of the other characters? Yeah, like, well, the original reason was very practical. Like, I had started this novel about two sisters, and I um, couldn't keep them straight. So I needed to differentiate them for myself. So I made one in the present and one in the past to kind of keep them more um, distinct for me so that they weren't blending together. And then, you know, eventually, once I got to know them, they became very distinct for me. I wouldn't have needed that device. But it was just kind of like an initial device for that. And I also, you know, I didn't want people to read this if it had been all kind of past tense reflections. I think there's sort of an expectation in the reader that like, oh, these are documents or um, statements that are being gathered for like some specific purpose um, in the present and that are being like put together by some sort of by a character. You know, I feel like I've seen so many kind of law and order effect. Right, right. I've just seen so many books like that, and I feel like that's fine, but it's just not what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted, I, I had no interest in um, following that kind of pat structure. Like, I understand why it's satisfying, but I don't like to be satisfying. Like, I like to be um, difficult, I think, like, in life in general. Like, I just feel like I rarely am like, let's do this the easy way. It's always like, let's do this the stupidest, most complicated way possible, <laughs> you know, like for everything. So why would it be any different with this book, you know? So I um, I don't know. It's just like, it just didn't seem like that compelling to me. I feel like there's something in a person's brain when they're like, oh, I get it. That's what this is, you know? And they just stop kind of really thinking about it or paying attention or trying to understand it. You know, like I think when you can categorize something so easily you don't really engage with it very deeply and so I think that's probably part of why I resisted having um like a very kind of clear form but then you know I think as a result because I kind of made this choice very early on like as a result Edie evolved for me as a, a character who exists in the present tense you know, like that affected who she became, like what what her personality was and stuff when I was writing it. Um, and How May's so? kind of reflection. Well, I feel like she's, you know, she's very um, passionate and reactive. Um, whereas, you know, she because she's responding to all this stuff very in the moment and it's very raw for her. And she's very vulnerable and like very, um, like emotions are very easily accessible to her. You know what I mean? Whereas I feel like for May, she's the kind of character who's a little bit more withholding with herself. You know, so having her be an artist and having her have all this kind of time to reflect on it is what allows her to be more honest. Whereas I feel like Edie, if she had more time to reflect on it, she would probably do something else. Like, she, I don't think she, I don't think time would make her more honest. I think it would make her less honest. And I think, like, she's somebody who has these immediate honest responses who then probably would kind of, with more time, like, maybe disregard them or kind of um, deny them or something in a way that is very different from her sister. But who they are just came out as a result of, like, a tense, you know, a tense choice that was, like, sort of arbitrary at the time. One of the other interesting, I wouldn't, I don't know if structural elements is exactly the right way to say it, but one of the other interesting pieces of um, the sort of puzzle that is this book is that Marianne is a poet. Marianne the mother is a poet. And 
uh, her poetry crops up in a few different places. How did you approach writing the poems that you use in the novel? Yeah, so it's not, I mean, I'm not a poet. You know, it's nice because she's like maybe a competent poet at best in the novel. Like she's not supposed to be necessarily like a brilliant genius of a poet because I feel like that would have been really like setting myself up for <laughs> failure. Like, um, but I don't, I mean, I was reading a lot of poetry uh, at the time. I was reading a lot of like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and, you know, other other poets that I was sort of modeling her after. Um, and just kind of letting it absorb. Um, it was really fun, actually, to to write stuff. I mean, I love doing things that are not, um, like, I love writing outside of my medium just because it's, I don't have, like, any high expectations for the results, you know? And so it just ended up being pretty fun. I feel like her, um, yeah, I don't want to, like, give anything away about the book, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it was fun. I read a ton of poetry basically. I had to um there was like this I thought that there's going to be this whole section that was going to be in verse. And um I tried to do that and that was insane. And so then I abandoned that which I think was not a bad choice. <laughs> um but yeah, I think uh I did like get a hotel room for one night and just like I think I ended up working on, like, a lot of the Marianne stuff in that hotel room without, like, nonstop. I think it helped to just be working on it for a very, very long stretch of time uninterrupted. Something yeah. about, like, that in particular. I mean, I guess that's, like, helpful for working on most things is good to be able to, like, kind of not have to, like, stop after, like, four hours or six hours. But, like, particularly with writing her poems, to be able to just completely immerse myself in that stuff was good. What did you want them to reveal about her as a character? And, uh, like, were there aspects of poetic construction or particular techniques that you employed to try to get there? I mean, I think, you know, so Dennis and Marianne are, you know, when you're reading the the beginning of the book, you're getting to know them really through, there's like some journals, some letters, some documents, but you're really, they don't get their own voices, right? You're just getting a sense of them through their daughters. So the poems were important in that they kind of were supposed to give you enough of a flavor of like who, how she wanted, who she was, but also like how she wanted to kind of present herself to the world through her poetry, um, some of the poems are like marginalia in his writing. So you get sort of her response to his, uh, his take on her and her response to his take on her basically through the poetry. What were your favorite parts to write? I feel like the poems were really fun to write, actually. Those were maybe some of my favorite parts. I don't know. I feel like I, um... You know, the parts that I kind of edited a lot more, like when I look back on, I feel less excited about just because I've seen them so much, so many more times. So like the beginning, you know, is the part that, because I've wrote it in order, right, that I probably edited the most. And the end is the part that I would have edited the least just in this process. So for me, like the end is the most exciting part because it's the part that feels like freshest to me. But I don't know. I mean, if I were to, like, think back to what it was like to actually write the the beginning part before, like, the endless revisions, 
I don't know. Like, I think there was something about Edie's sections that felt very, um, like, I would, I was definitely in that kind of dream state, like, writing them. Maybe it was because it was in the present tense, so you really had to, like, embody it completely. Um, so it was, like, this kind of strange thing happened while writing them. So I did, it was, like, a little bit magical, I guess. And mm-hmm. it, so I, I did enjoy that, I think, a lot. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, I did just a little research beforehand, and it, it seems to crop up in a lot of the stuff that you write. What's your relationship with that place? I used to live there. So I moved to New Orleans after Katrina to volunteer, and then I ended up living there for a few years. Um, it's actually where I met my husband. And then we moved to St. Louis for when I went to grad school, and then from there we moved to L.A. But, like, yeah, after after college, I basically ended up moving to to New Orleans. And it was sort of like my first time as an adult, you know, like a completely separated adult. Like it felt like this kind of rebellion because I had grown up, I was from Boston and then, you know, I went to school in, in New York and I feel like I hadn't really left. I mean, I'd, I'd traveled, I guess, in Europe or whatever, but I hadn't really traveled in the U.S. at all and I hadn't really left the Northeast much. And so to be in New Orleans, you know, it's just so completely different and it felt so freeing and then also you know it was just like I was actually doing something that was helping people for like the first time in my life like with the hurricane relief stuff and that felt pretty significant too. What's next for you? I've started like researching another novel that I've been working on. I don't want to talk too much about it I guess Mm -hmm. but it is uh, set in like revolutionary Russia or at least that's what my researches. I mean, I feel like this was set in 1950s, in the 1950s South originally, you know, and it like evolved (laughs) into being something totally different. And that was just the backdrop. So I guess it's possible with my novel that it'll also just like evolve a lot. And I've been like working on that script too, which is about four teenage girls and like told also from four different perspectives. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you so much for talking to me and having me on your show. Katya Pekina's book is The Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish, and you can buy it pretty much everywhere books are sold. Thanks. Katya Apikina is the author of The Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish, published this past September by $2 Radio. Next time, I talk to first-time author M.K. England about their young adult space opera, The Disasters. I hope you'll join us. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Lanier Sammons is our sound engineer. He also wrote our theme. Special thanks go to David Weinberg, who lent us his studio for this episode. <laughs>